Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 251. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code TherapyChat when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I am bringing you an interview I did pre-pandemic with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I think her message will resonate just as much with us now as we're going through this as it did before the pandemic. But if there's anything that seems out of sync with what's been happening in our current times, that's why. As always, I appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat. I appreciate you leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, which helps make the algorithm help the podcast find more people. Whether you listen, you're a member on Patreon, or you've left a rating or review, or you haven't, I'm just grateful that you're here. So let's dive right into my interview with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, the author of the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression. Margaret, thanks so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm really excited to dig into talking about your book. But before we even do that, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, but actually that was my second career. I was a professional singer in my 20s. I sang jingles and jazz at night in Dallas. It was was fun to do for about eight years. And then I decided to uh, go into music therapy, which led me into psychology. So it's been a bit of a circuitous route for me. (laughs) Yeah, I can can hear that you were a singer. Your voice is very 
soothing and mellow. I can totally hear that. (laughs) Well, thanks. But I came to Arkansas. My husband and I moved here in 93 and I opened a practice. I graduated from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School there in Dallas. And then we moved to Arkansas. So I've been here for over 25 years in private practice. And I really never wanted to write a book, Laura. Mm. (laughs) Love being a therapist. I love seeing people and trying to help and I really was quite content at doing that. But we were lucky enough to have a son. And when he left, I had a lot of time on my hands. And I had a friend who's sort of an entrepreneurial coach around here. And she said, why don't you write? She said, you write fun emails. Why don't you just write? And I thought, well, okay. So I started blogging in 2012. And I was blogging about Empty Nest, actually. I was talking about what you go through and that sort of thing. And then I got I got itchy about wanting to write about mental health, what I do every day long, all day long. So I I started a new website called drmargaretrutherford.com in April of 2014. And I since then, and that's where I am now at drmargaretrutherford.com. Creative name, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) How'd you come up with that? But what happened when, so, well, let me not talk about that quite yet. So I've been then blogging for since, since 2014 and I started podcasting three years ago. So mm-hmm. I entered the same world that you're in, this wonderful podcast world and started that and just have loved that as well to, to, to um, just to kind of stretch out the walls of my office and, and gather in people who may never have thought about therapy or people who are in therapy or people who've just been initially diagnosed and just wanted to reach out to those folks too. So that's been a wonderful enterprise as well. I didn't even know you had a podcast. And what yeah. is that called? It's called the Self Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I love that. I'm going to have to check that out. Thanks. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so how did you end up writing the book? I mean, what? Because, you know, it's not just about mental health. It's about a very specific area of mental health. And it's certainly one that I see in my clients all the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you wrote about it. But what made you decide to do that? Well, it was back in early spring, April of 2014, again, right after I started writing the, the blog, started my blog on mental health. And I was sitting on my son porch and just thinking, well, what do I want to write about this week? And I was thinking about some of the people, I'm sure very similar to the ones you've seen, whose presentation was very, very different as a patient. And we sort of had to scratch the surface pretty deeply for them to reveal sadness. In fact, it was very, very difficult for them to connect with painful emotions at all. And if they none of them came to therapy claiming that they were depressed, not one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I would notice, maybe the same thing you've noticed, is that they would be talking about something really traumatic and they would be smiling at me like it was just sort of a, oh, an everyday thing that happened that you are raped or that you, you know, you stones thrown at you as a child. And I would kind of ask them to stop and consider what they were saying and and they would look at me like, well, this is not very bad. You know, there are lots of horrible things, more horrible things that happen to people. And so as I was thinking about those folks, I wrote, I just thought of the term perfectly hidden depression because these people are also highly successful, highly engaged, 
have lots of friends. Uh, they look very productive and like they've got the world by the tail. So I called it the perfectly hidden depressed person, are you one? At that point, probably I had maybe 50 shares, maybe if I really wrote something that really interested people, you know, somewhere more like 100. Well, it went viral. And I was writing for the Huffington Post at the time as well. And I forgot when they post posted it there that I had my email at the bottom of the post. <laughs> well, by 24 hours later, I was swamped with emails wow. about how do you know this? How did you figure it out? I love this term. I even had an incredibly poignant one from a woman here in Fayetteville who said, I was going to hurt myself this week and I'm going to go home and talk to my family. I immediately, of course, got in touch with her and she said she already had a therapist. But so this really suggested highly to me that this topic was something that people were yearning to hear about. And I began looking for connections in the literature about perfectionism and depression. And, I, and I, I don't know if I'd been living under a rock or what, but I'd never heard of Brene Brown at that point. <laughs> so obviously I found her work, but, and I read it. She didn't have everything she has out now. She did, had not mm-hmm. written Aaron greatly, for example, but I read what she wrote and I could not find, she sort of stopped she talked about vulnerability. Mm-hmm. She talk, She talks about shame. She talks about, you know, empower, being empowered through walking through your vulnerability and all that was great. But she didn't actually link it with depression. And so I spent another year or so asking people if I could interview them. I, every time I would write a post about perfectly hidden depression, I would put down at the bottom, if you're interested in being interviewed, please email me. Well, I had several people email me, even though they were quote unquote hiding. And I called through those pretty, pretty carefully trying to weed out people that might not really meet the criteria. Mm. And I talked with all of them and learned so much and their stories are actually in the book. But I came up with this idea, Laura, that this was, I mean, I'm, I'm not narcissistic enough to believe that I've come up with some sort of new diagnosis of depression. That That's not it at all. I don't think this is a diagnosis. I think perfectionism is a character trait. And in this instance, you, you pair it with a lot of constant critical inner voice shame and you've got a problem and that can mask depression. So I called it a syndrome, which of course is a group of behaviors or beliefs that are found together, kind of like salt and pepper or red hair and freckles or something. So, <laughs> and I came, I spent some time obviously trying to work out in my own mind and would write about it and ask people to give me feedback about what maybe the characteristics were. I thought about the patients I'd already seen that had this sort of these behaviors and beliefs. And lo and behold, I actually knew someone, a blogger friend of mine who had interviewed me for a book on empty nest, her own book, which is a wonderful book. Um, uh, from mom to me again. But anyway, she, unbeknownst to me, she was an acquiring editor for an agent. Now, she may have told me that at the time, but I didn't really know what that was. Yeah. And she said, I think you ought to submit a book proposal. I think you ought to write a book proposal because she was reading my posts on it. So that's what I did. And her agent was very interested. And so I didn't even have to work to find an agent. He just said, I'll do this. And, you know, three and a half years later, I got a, I had a publisher and a book. So I started on this 
what, literally in April of 2014. And so actually five years later, I, I my book was published November the 19th by New Harbinger. Okay. Thank Lots you for, of early oh, mornings. I'm sorry. <laughs> of early mornings, because I was also still seeing all my patients, you know, still seeing 30 to 35 people a week. So mm-hmm. it's been a, a pretty exhilarating, gruesome struggle, joy, honor, whatever you want to say. But uh, I've, I've, I've learned so much about writing and about just the whole process. It's been fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious. I mean, I love that you brought up Brene Brown because I don't know if you know, but I'm trained in her daring greatly or daring way method. And um, yeah. And so I've I found her work to be extremely helpful in working with people who really have perfectionism and shame and and these high achieving clients who do feel disconnected from their own emotional pain. But and don't recognize their past traumatic experience as being experiences as being traumatic. But I have also noticed where the work stops and, you know, she's not, she's a researcher and she's not trying to be a therapist. She's not claiming to be a clinician. Right. And so some of the pieces that we would understand in, in our training and our work aren't brought into it. So, but I would love to hear what is, how does a client who has perfectly hidden depression present? What's the criteria that you came up with? Sure. Sure. And I try to be careful to, to not say that they have it because that sounds like it's a, it's a diagnosis. You know, okay. you've got old. <laughs> I try to use the terms you identify with it, or maybe you experience it because okay. to me, I really don't want people to go to their doctor and say, I have perfectly hidden depression yes. and you know, I need a medicine for that. Or please I need some, fix my PhD. Please fix my, yeah. That's right. So the the 10 characteristics that I came up with, again, sort of to help your listeners understand syndrome, we all talk about codependence now. You know, it's just a normal word we use. Mm -hmm. But when codependence was initially born or created, it was a bunch of people who got together and said, what do people who are loving and trying to be in relationship with an alcoholic, what do they share? What kinds of behaviors and beliefs do they share? Yeah. And it became the syndrome of codependence. So this is something similar. And again, I'm always learning. And so I, probably the list I would write now would be somewhat different than the list I wrote three years ago. But it has morphed some too. But let me let me share them with you. Okay. The first one is definitely. Definitely, definitely perfectionism with a strong, constant, critical voice of shame. You know, perfectionism in and of itself, if it's if it's um, part of OCD, is often fueled by anxiety. And then just striving for success, which is perfectionism, obviously, is 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 born of competitiveness or drive or achievement or whatever. But I believe this kind of perfectionism is driven by shame and driven by fear. So uh, I think that's different. The second one is over responsibility. These people always have their hands up in their air in the air. If it's if it's going to get done, they they say I could do it. You know, and a lot of people think of them that they're the best person to do it. They have a lot on their plates and they don't necessarily take anything off when they add something on. In fact, they laugh at me when I ask them that question. Mm -hmm. They're worriers. They're anxious people. They don't really want people to know that they're worriers. 
years, however. So they just try to look for ways to feel very much in control. Uh, The fourth is they, uh, as we've talked about, they discount or deny pain or trauma. They just don't see it as important. They have rigidly compartmentalized their feelings about that. And that's the other one that's very tied with this. They're not able to express that painful emotion. I've learned from some perfectionism researchers who Gordon Flett and Paul Hewitt up in Canada have told me that their research shows that perfectionists can describe their painful emotion. They can say, yes, my dog died last week and I'm very, very sad. It's not that they can't use a word, an emotional word, but they can't express it. They can't let themselves feel it, not at least openly and publicly. So they're not able to the express the the what? The emotion? The emotion itself. They can't. I mean, if I asked, they're much less likely to for their eyes to tear up when they talk about their dog. Yeah. You know, it's just like they they find it too vulnerable to actually. And they actually sometimes I've found in my work with several of them that have come in that they don't even know how to express painful emotion. They don't even know the words why it's even important. Okay. These people are a great friend to other people. They're very engaged. They are the first person that's going to be over at somebody's house when they need help, but they do not know how to let other people in. That obviously ties in with these others. They believe strongly in counting their blessings. And in fact, they don't allow themselves to realize that blessings have a a painful counterpart. I mean, if you're if you have four kids, that's a blessing. A lot of people would love to have kids that can't. And so you're you know, it's great that you have four kids, but that's a lot of homework. That's a lot of (laughs) game, Mm -hmm. a lot of years of educating. I mean, there's some downsides to having that many children. But these are folks that don't believe in focusing on that at all or allowing themselves to feel it. They have a strong focus on tasks to help them feel very accomplished, uh, just being, being. What if I had one person tell me she's a doomen, not a human? <laughs> so these people believe in, I get my worth through doing and through accomplishment. Then the last one is something a little bit more, no, I'm sorry, on number nine. They have a, they're very successful, but their their relationships, their primary relationships, they lack a lot of intimacy. They don't really know how to be emotionally intimate. And then this last one is a, and I thought this is a clinician was important to note. They, there's usually a co-occurrence or there can be a co-occurrence of an actual anxiety disorder or some kind of disorder having to do with control. For example, a lot of the people that have come in to see me for this have eating disorders or they're struggling with being addicted to benzodiazepines or they have some form of OCD or generalized anxiety disorder. However, it can be different, but there's usually panic disorder or something like that that can co-occur with the experience of perfectly hidden depression. And I I included that because I don't want people to ignore what could be a real diagnosable condition because they're now calling it, oh, this must just be perfectly hidden depression. No, it could be real OCD, real uh, generalized anxiety, whatever. Okay. So the 10th one was that they have a co-occurring? I was writing these all down. They can have a co-occurrence of of an anxiety disorder or some kind of disorder that has to do with either staying control, staying in control or, you know, like addictions are about getting out of control or escaping from anxiety or escaping from, you know, depression or sadness or whatever. And so that's about sort of losing control. So sometimes I see these people struggling with addictions as well. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, really, this feels very familiar. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it does. Both with my clients and some with myself, too. Like, definitely, I can see, you know, ways that I, I know that I have some perfectionism tendencies, but I've gotten a lot better with it. So it's sort of like seeing how I can be (laughs) when I'm not at my best, for sure. I I think I got a, I mean, it was disappointing to be turned down by publishers and there were many more turned downs than interest. But even the ones that turned me down would say to me, this is an important book and I hope you get it published because you're actually talking about so many of us here in the publishing industry. And I I had a lot of comments like that. And so I'm hoping that they see that it's now published and they're, they're feeling good about it. Or at least they get to read it, right? Yeah. At least they get to read it. That's right. (laughs) Well, yeah. And so that's the other thing is that I think that these these characteristics that you mentioned are very common in therapists and other helping professionals. You bet, because, you know, we sometimes as a as a uh, profession have trouble even letting people see our own vulnerabilities. You know, when therapy first got started, the therapist was supposed to be anonymous. You know, you weren't supposed to know anything about a therapist. And one choice that I've made um, is to be very open about my own uh, struggles with mental illness. And I think more and more therapists are using that as effectively as they can in their therapy. Not that you want to self-reveal too much. But or constantly, but certainly some of that self-revelation, it can be very helpful. Yeah. Normalizing and making the client see that, you know, you're not alone in this. Exactly. Exactly. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes a few years ago. I'd say it's about three years now, I believe. And I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes. And there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, Give Therapy Notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code TherapyChat. Now let's get back to our interview. So I noticed that in the characteristics that you mentioned, none of them really sound like depression, which makes sense because you're calling it perfectly hidden depression. Right. Well, the thing that that so many people have told me, there were I probably interviewed about 60 people altogether. It took me a, a good six, seven, eight months. And these were neurosurgeons, motivational speakers, advertising execs, stay at home moms. I mean, there was a huge diversity in in the people that reached out to me. And a few of them had sought therapy. 
And what they told me was that they were handed the Beck Depression Inventory or something like that. And, of course, they said no to everything. And they, because people like this will not fit criteria for depression, which, as you know, two of the major ones are depressed mood and what's called anhedonia, meaning that you don't seem to or you don't enjoy activities that you previously enjoyed. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, someone with perfectly hidden depression or who identifies with it won't they still sort of enjoy what they're doing now in their gut they know something is wrong they're very lonely they're very empty they can even be despairing they can have suicidal thoughts but they're very engaged and and again clinicians we will miss them i'm sure i've missed people like this i'm sure that i've diagnosed them with anxiety or overwork or or just said you have panic disorder and i didn't look for depression because they are so expert at this rigid compartmentalization of anything from the past or the present that is that is painful for them. You know, one of the things, one question that I've gotten a lot, Laura, is, well, what's this difference between this and what people call high-functioning depression or smiling depression? And I do think that people who have that kind of depression will identify with perfectly hidden depression. It's, and I'm certainly not saying that people who have classic depression, who fit criteria for depression, don't put a smile on their face and they go to work or they take good care of their kids or they try different meds or they exercise or whatever. Those are people who are courageously fighting their way through classic depression. But there is a group that's also so important to talk about that have done this for so long, it was built into their strategy for emotional survival so early in their lifetime that it has gone underground, so to speak. They're not conscious of really doing it anymore. And so when I look at them and say, or a clinician looks at them and says, do you struggle with hopelessness? They go, no, no, I don't struggle with that at all. No, I enjoy my life. I mean, it they have learned so well to, again, rigidly compartmentalize, discount, cloak, hide, whatever you want to say, any kind of pain. Maybe they grew up in families that pain wasn't allowed. I know you focus a lot on trauma. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, they had a lot of trauma in their lives growing up, and they either had to become very pseudo-mature and pseudo-adult, or they were screamed at that they weren't going to to amount uh, to anything, and so they put on this perfect-looking facade. So by damn, they were going to amount to something. Maybe they, again, simply grew up in families where painful emotions weren't allowed. They were discounted. You were sent to your room if you admitted being afraid or angry. But maybe even you were the child that was... Um, was very enmeshed with a parent and it became your job to please them. And the better you did, the more your parents seemed uh, very happy. And so, you know, you grew, you grew up believing the better I do, the less problems I have, the more I can make my parent happy. And you just continue that strategy. So there is a huge group, I think, that and I think actually some of those people are the people who emailed me after it became after it was published in the Huffington Post that said, how did you figure this out? Because until we saw the term perfectly hidden depression, which is what I've been told, I, I, I knew what my gut had been trying to tell me. I knew that something was really wrong, that I don't have to feel shame for even wondering if I'm depressed, that I had one woman I was actually working with at the time that I wrote this book. 
And I'll never forget one afternoon, she said, you know, one night, really, really early in the morning, uh, two o'clock or something, I finally asked myself, well, could I be depressed? And she said she looked at the criteria and she just had this sudden awful shame that erupted within her. And she said, how could I even think that I had this? I'm not this person. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated that I would even look at these criteria and wonder if they were me. And so she shut the idea down that she could possibly be depressed and went on overachieving, feeling this incredible pressure and expectation from the perceived expectations of others or the real expectations of others. Yeah, that that's a good point, too, when you say the perceived expectations or real expectations of others. Because I see, I see a lot of where people are like, and I've thought this too, like, I have to do this. I have to do more. I'm not, I'm not allowed not to do so much. And and then it's like, well, who do I think is telling me that? Exactly. Because there's no one telling me that. Exactly. And there hasn't been anyone telling me that. Probably right. at least, you know. Right. Well, uh, again, not to get over research oriented, but I think this is interesting. Um, there's a lot of research being done on three different types of perfectionism. And one is self-directed perfectionism, which simply means you are very competitive and achievement oriented and you want to do really well. There's other oriented or, or other directed perfectionism, which is about you expect perfectionism from others. And then there's the third, which is called socially prescribed perfectionism. And what that is, is when you are on a constant treadmill because the last thing you did becomes the thing you have to top. And there are expectations all around you that that will happen. People will slap you on the back and say, that was a great job on that project. And, you know, we're going to expect even more from you next time because now we know what we can expect. And or the fundraiser you throw and they say, you've got to be cheer person next year because you just did a the better job than anybody could possibly do. And so you're constantly ramped up to always push, 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 push. And that pressure is the most dangerous kind of perfectionism. It's the kind of perfectionism that will lead to suicidality. Most, it's the most correlated kind of depression with actual suicide thoughts or suicide attempts or, quote unquote, successful suicides. Yeah, that's obviously that's very grave. And as, of course, we all know, this is a huge problem. And but the thing that I see a lot is that the people achievements that people have are like astounding. But to them, not only is it no big deal, they barely even notice. So it's basically like if you if you make a small mistake, right, you're complete failure. But if you do something that no one's ever done before, it's like, yeah, you know, thanks. But, you know, I wanted it to be better or. Well, that's great. But, you know, my my real goal is blank, you know. Right. Right. I mean, not everyone can be, you know, the president or not everyone is going to be the the head of the U.N. or something. It's like sometimes I'm amazed at what people don't give themselves credit for when they have. Let's say if you were like the deputy director of the U.N. and you're like, yeah, but I'll never be the leader. <laughs> it's like, <Yeah>. what? <laughs> right. I'll never, I'll never be the top of the pile. Yeah, I I do think that I you know what is that imposter syndrome thing that we all you know mm-hmm. some people can suffer from, which is and I certainly did 
uh, as a vocalist, you can imagine getting into graduate school was a little uh, astounding to me. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> and once I was uh, writing my dissertation, that changed my mind, by the way. So I do think that these the goals they have for themselves are can certainly be they can't they don't give themselves credit for what they've done already. I'm and you know, it's probably that that is again fueled by shame. I remember another man that I worked with who was a millionaire, Laura, and and he looked at me and he said, It's my dream to use my learning in order to help other people. I want to go to third world countries and help them build what he knew how to build. And I said, Well you you certainly can do that And he looked at me and he said, but my dad, he was one of those people that I've mentioned before. My dad told me I'd never amount to anything and I'm not sure I've amounted to enough. Mm. And so, you know, he said, and I said, how will you ever know that? And he looked at me very sadly and said, I don't know. So, you know, how can you ever be successful enough? And when you don't have an innate sense of your own worth, again, remember part of the one of the symptoms is your task oriented, your tasks, your accomplishments define your worth. So that's what you're sort of talking about, that there's always another accomplishment that's out there. Some people have asked me, well, do you want your book to be a New York Times bestseller? And I look at them and say, well, that would be a miracle. But one, but two, I don't want that as my goal. I want this book to get in the hands of the people that need to read it. And if that catches the eye of the New York Times, fine and dandy. I doubt if it will. I'm a therapist from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm not in New York or L.A. and I don't know any people that are famous or anything. And so it's... But why does it even really matter if it does or not? Because that's not... What measure is that? If I struggled with this more than I'm some, you know, I'm a bit... I'm certainly a perfectionist myself, but I don't think I've suffered with this. So... I do believe that knowing that you're always going to be on a spectrum and that there's going to be always someone who's achieved more than you have and always someone who looks up to you and says, gosh, I wish I'd achieved what she has, that that kind of just understanding and acceptance and even enjoyment of that, that I want to have people in my life that inspire me, that have, quote unquote, done more than I've done, because I can use them to motivate me and inspire me rather than so I haven't been successful because I'm not who they are. Yeah. But, you know, it even it's like a somewhat of a two dimensional way of looking at what achievement really is. It's like instead of seeing that, for example, if I use the deputy of the U.N., obviously that person has is making a major contribution to to the world through their work. And if as they were working their way up to that point, obviously they were their work was making a major impact. If they were the head of the UN, does that really mean that they their work is more meaningful than it was when they were doing, you know, the the job titles that they had before that? Exactly. Exactly. No. Exactly. Uh, so but the title when, and the task is more important than the substance of the. Right. But again, when you have shame as the fuel that's feeding that, then what kind of accomplishment will will diffuse that shame? And, and a lot of my patients have said until they did the work, this man I was talking about didn't do the work. He left therapy. He couldn't tolerate it. And so which was very sad. And so. 
anyway, I, I, I think until you get it, you just don't get it. <laughs> and that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to try to, I do have a treatment strategy in the book about what do you do to try to guide yourself through this? I have a lot of caveats about please don't do that It's a, if you're actually dealing with trauma because it can be dangerous for you to do that alone. But hopefully the book acts as a guide. There's five steps and a guide to actually going from understanding perfectionism as a problem and allowing yourself to recognize the tentacles it has in your life that are really causing you some chaos anywhere from then committing to that change, which can be very hard because no one is saying this is a problem except you, to confrontation of a lot of the rules that you're following that are long, long, it's long overdue that they change, to connecting with those emotions, learning how to connect with those emotions. And I suggest that people use a trauma timeline in order to do that. Mm. And then the last, and all these are interactive stages, but the last stage is going from insight to actual behavioral change and how do you do that? And I've used stories. Um, there are lots of stories interspersed through the book about these people I talked with that makes, I hope, makes the book very real to read. You'll probably find yourself in several of those stories. And then there are like over 60 exercises and reflections to help guide you. So it's actually more like a workbook than it is a book. Yeah, but you packed it, a lot in there. It's not a big book. I tried. I tried. <laughs> Anyway, I, it's not a long book. It's about 200 pages. It's an easy read, I think. And, and the exercises are not easy. The exercises are tough. And some, and some of them are easier than others, but it's tough to to confront some of this stuff when you haven't in the past. So, mm-hmm. so I, I really tried to not only work from what I know works as a clinician to what I, you know, when the publishing company asked me to come up with a treatment strategy, I sort of froze. I'd almost threw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, oh my God. But what I realized was that I do sort of have this form that I use with all my patients. And I just, I just, I, I use those steps with every patient that I have. And so I had more experience with the treatment strategy than I was willing to, uh, or able to admit at first. But I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm a very direct, common sense kind of therapist, and so I, uh, I I wanted to write a book that would reflect that and would help people get down to the nitty-gritty of what's going on with them and actually try to learn to be more comfortable with vulnerability, and certainly I have done that through the writing of this book. Mm. I think it sounds amazing. And as I told you before we started recording, I haven't finished the book, but what I've read so far, I love it. And I definitely think that these, all these exercises that you have in the book are things that I'll be using with my clients because, you know, thank you. Yeah. When we were talking, I thought of probably like six of my clients who, you know, could surely see themselves in what they're, what we're talking about and what's in this book. So I think it's going to be a good way to facilitate them being able to think differently about their inner worlds. I sure hope so, Laura. It is, as your listeners and you can probably tell, I have been very passionate about this to go from never wanting to write a book to being determined to write this book or to get this book published. Yeah. Uh, I'm very welcome. It was very lucky that New Harbinger was interested and they're really, there's a little smaller publishing company, but they only publish mental health books and they've had some great successes with other books. So I was delighted that they took me under their wing and actually their editors made it a much better book. I'm a novice writer. And so they really helped me. I, I think the book, book flows really well and 
So I'm, I'd be delighted for your listeners or your clients or whomever to get a copy. And where will they find it? They can find it at, on Amazon at Barnes and Noble. Okay. And also your, your, you can go to your, if you'd rather support your local bookstore, you can go there. They might not have it on the shelves. Again, it's not a New York Times bestseller, but they will be able to order it. And or you can actually order it straight from New Harbinger. They I think you get a discount when you do that. And it's on it's discounted on Amazon as well right now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know, it's been doing pretty well and I'm just I'm 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 thank you so much for letting me talk about it here on Therapy Chat and I am I'm, I'm honored that you would take your time and your listeners' time for me to talk about it. And I sure hope that some of them find it helpful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being my guest today. And I, I'm very pleased to share what you're doing. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So I'm grateful that you took your time to come here today. Sure. Let me let uh, your listeners know you can actually my email, that infamous email, <laughs> ask Dr. Margaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I do have a podcast, the self-work podcast with, with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, where you can listen to several or download several episodes that are about perfectly hidden depression that go all the way back to episode three. And, and then are interspersed throughout 163 episodes. And so you can listen there. You can go to my uh, website at drmarketrutherford.com. And I'd certainly like it if your listeners gave me a heads up and let me know what they thought. Great. Thank you. I'll share all of these resources in our show notes. Sure. And thank you again for being my guest today. You're so welcome. Thank you. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, Go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.